Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Get a quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Hey, Nate. Hey. Hey, it's Stephen Dubner. How's it going? Good. Good to talk to you. First off, just tell us in, you know, 60 seconds or less what you actually do now in a given day. So I am the editor-in-chief of the website 538.com, and I don't know that I have a lot of consistency from from day to day. Um, sometimes I'm writing, sometimes I'm running models, sometimes I'm editing, sometimes I'm managing, um, sometimes doing, doing media. Um, so it's a job that is always really fun and challenging in the sense that you're not doing too much of the same thing, but, um, but I have to think carefully about how to budget my time. Nate Silver is America's favorite statistical guru of the past, well, maybe ever. He has been devilishly accurate in predicting electoral outcomes. Before that, he joined the small but influential fraternity of stat heads who work with data in sports, particularly in baseball. He's written an excellent book called The Signal and the Noise, which is essentially about the folly of prediction. And today, he is our guest on the latest installment of Frequently Asked Questions, in which we compel a noteworthy person to tell us some important truths, such as their favorite sport. I don't know, bowling, (laughs) I suppose. Just how devoted they are to their work. I don't even always watch, like, the State of the Union, (laughs) for example. And... What you learn about life as you get a bit older. One of the most profound lessons to me about adulthood is that everyone's kind of weird. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host... Stephen Dubner. What do we do on the show? Pretty simple. We ask questions, hopefully the sort of questions you might like to ask, and we ask them to the sort of people that you might like to hear from. Nate Silver, for instance. He is chiefly known as the proprietor of 538.com. Yeah, so... The kind of elevator pitch is that 538 is data journalism. The problem is once you get past the first five words, then it becomes a little bit more complicated <laughs> to define, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, but really we think it's it's empirical analysis, quote unquote, the scientific method as applied to journalism, but it's entirely compatible with traditional reporting approaches too. But the idea is just it's kind of, we believe there are skill sets that are underused in journalism, including 
computer programming, coding, statistical analysis, of course, in particular. And we think that um, journalists could benefit from having more of that. These days, 538 covers a lot of territory. Sports, the economy, pop culture. But it is politics, especially political elections, that make up its foundation. That is where the site got its name, from the number of votes in the Electoral College, which determines who wins the presidency of the United States. I started just as kind of a, a you know, blogger.com blog back in, um, in 2008 during the campaign then. Um, it kind of blew up um, during 2008. Um, I licensed it to the New York Times from 2010 to 2013, and then it was acquired by ESPN after that. I'm kind of a big poker player, and I've played in the World Series of Poker a couple of times, never done extraordinarily well. But to win the World Series of Poker, when there are like 7,000 entrants, you have to get really, really lucky a couple of times, right? And it kind of feels like in 2008 and again in 2012, I won a couple of really big pots and key circumstances when things could have broken against me. During those elections, Silver compiled polling and demographic data from many sources. He aggregated, weighted, and analyzed these data, forging predictions that turned out to be remarkably accurate. So, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm playing on house money a little bit, but, you know, I'm also trying to, to turn that into something more sustainable and, and, you know, build out a staff of really talented journalists and really great people. And that's kind of where I'm mostly focused on right now. We spoke back in early March when Nate Silver had two things to celebrate. The one-year anniversary of 538 on ESPN.com and the paperback publication of his book, The Signal and the Noise. First and foremost, congratulations. Does it feel like a time to sit back and appreciate yourself or not really? That's the problem is like you can't really stay still. And we have like, you know, March Madness this month and the UK election coming up. Um, and so, yeah, there's, I mean, you can kind of be content or happy, but kind of not both at the same time, I found, is one of the, the consequences of being, having a lot to do and kind of being people's boss and stuff. Where do you find people that fit your worldview? Because your worldview, while it's pretty popular in some circles, including, I should say, the circle of people who listen to a show like this, it's not overwhelmingly popular. It's certainly not quite mainstream yet. And furthermore, it's new-ish. So how do you find people that you think will fit? I mean, I think one, uh, one sort of problem we have is that the skill set that we're hiring for is a place where people would have a lot of options um, in addition to journalism. I tend to buy into the notion that there's a, a shortage in the United States of STEM talent, and we're hiring from that pool a little bit. But still, you know, there are a lot of organizations, news organizations that are trying to be more data-driven. You know, a lot of college programs are training people in coding and computer programming and statistics in addition to journalism as part of their curriculum. So it's, it's getting better over time. But, you know, we do sometimes feel like we have more ideas than we have the capacity to execute on right now. But that's also kind of part of being a, a startup and having a lot of creative people on board. And let's say you find uh, a perfect candidate, 10 perfect candidates who are all the perfect data nerds who are really good with the math and the statistics and even have good taste, but don't do journalism at all. Is that more coachable than the inverse? I'm not sure. I mean, I think there are a lot of parts to being 
a journalist that are hard to teach other than through experience. Um, you know, one of them that we noticed our people have that maybe some people in academia lack um, is just a sense for how other people see the world. So, no, I, I'm not sure it's been our experience so far that that one skill set is easier than, than the other to teach. Obviously, a lot of the work is collaborative, too, where you might have someone who's more experienced in getting on the phone um, or traveling somewhere and talking to people um, and someone else who's more versed in the number crunching. You are the perfect person for me to ask this question of, in the last, I don't know, three, four, five years, the phrase big data has become so used, maybe abused, that it's it really has become a cliche in a, in a pretty short time, and it's used in corporate advertising slogans and so on. And and to me, and I may be totally wrong on this, but to me, it's it's received in some quarters as a sort of magic bullet. No, I, I agree with, with almost all of that, really. It's kind of one of the themes of my book. And there, there are a couple of things to, to unpack. Um, you know, one is the term big data itself. And there are some people who would say, well, big data has to be really large, uh, not the sort of stuff you could crunch on, on, um, on a regular computer. You know, for example, we launched Interactive recently where it looks at a different way of looking at which flights actually get you there the fastest, what's the best airline um, for logistics, and that relies on data um, from about 6 million flights. That sounds impressive, but you can still run that program in about about 10 or 12 minutes on, on a laptop, right? Um, people wouldn't really say it's big data when all those records are pretty carefully scrutinized. Um, but that said, you know, people, I think, when they say big data often mean analytics, really, and statistical analysis, applied statistics. You know, it's not all about the data necessarily, you know, oftentimes it's not about the amount of data you have, but how much you vetted that data. If a data set is virginal, as I call it, no one's looked at it before, really, you're going to have a lot of problems. And one problem with a really large data set is that if you're running some algorithm, some quick and dirty way to find the most influential data points, a lot of times those are bugs and outliers, right? And the reason why you have big anomalies is because someone coded it in wrong or, or you made some mistake in, in the analysis, you know. I also think there aren't necessarily the skills and the training. So one thing I talked about in my book is how when the personal computer became commonplace in the workforce, the 1970s, then in the home in the early 1980s, it took a while before there were any tangible signs of productivity gains in the economy, meaning like 10 or 15 or 20 years even. Um, so I think people love new technology, but they overestimate how much the kind of human factor gets in the way. I'm not trying to be cute about that. I just mean that, you know, people need to learn how to use these tools, what they can do, what they can't do. Um, you know, no amount of data is a substitute for for scientific inference and hypothesis testing and kind of structured analysis of a system. I think one of the false promises that was made early on is that, well, if you have a billion data points or a trillion data points, you're going to find lots and lots of correlations through brute force. Um, and you will, but the problem is that a high percentage of those, maybe the vast majority, are false correlations, are false positives, where they're statistically significant, but, but you have so many lottery tickets when you can run um, an analysis on, on a trillion data points that you're going to have some one in a million coincidences just by chance alone. If you bet all your money on them, you might wind up looking very foolish in the end. How is 538 doing, um, I guess, overall, editorial, but but also from a traffic and business um, perspective. You know, whenever there's a, a web debut as high profile as yours leaving the New York Times for ESPN, there's a lot of noise, but then uh, the noise recedes. And I'm curious, are you making 
boatloads of money for ESPN? Are they having <laughs> mega buyer's remorse because you're so expensive? How's that working? <laughs> you know, in the first year, I mean, it's a pretty young staff, and a lot of people were doing what they were doing for the first time, and the expectations were pretty high. So it kind of took some time to to hit a groove, I think. Um, it's you know, I try to make analogies sometimes to um, to opening a new restaurant where you might have a lot of ambition for it, um, but to reproduce something every day, it's very much, I mean, we, after the first day we published, which was um, March 17th, 2014, we kind of all got beers after work and we were really pleased and we like literally, or at least I had, I won't blame my We're employees. done. <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten that. Oh <laughs> crap. We have to publish this website every day for the rest of our lives. Right. And so achieving that kind of consistency takes a little bit more time. Um, but you know, if you are looking at kind of indicators, I mean, Traffic is up about about two times year over year. Um, it often happens when you launch a product, but that's good. It's happened to us too. Um, we're growing our staff in a slow but sustainable way. We have um, you know twenty five or thirty people now, depending on how you count. Um, but we're just able to do more things at once. I mean, in this period here, in the kind of early spring, we're launching an interactive on airlines and the NSA tournament and the UK election and a historical perspective on NBA basketball. Um, so four or five things in addition to the work we're doing from day to day. So that success thus far, notwithstanding, at the New York Times, 538, which was a much, much, much smaller operation than it is at ESPN, 538 was more essential, certainly, to the New York Times website than 538 is to ESPN, which is a, a, a sports behemoth. What's the difference for you being, you know, now you're a prominent and I don't know what size fish in a really big pond. At the times you were a prominent and gigantic fish in a big pond, um, which came about, I know, organically and maybe even surprisingly to you. But it did happen where you were driving so much traffic, you personally with a couple colleagues to the, to the New York Times website. What's the difference now for you psychically and editorially? It's funny, I mean, in terms of, and we don't obsess too much over traffic, right? But the election day peak was really high at the times, and that's the people figure site. And the median month, though, we now get, you know, five or six times more traffic, more visitors than we did at the time. So, you know, I think sometimes people grasp onto outliers, <laughs> including when they talk about us in 538. So ESPN, when it signs a deal with a sports league like the NPA, that's a 10-year deal, and they literally will be contemplating technologies that don't even exist yet. The thing about traffic now is that you can measure so much in real time, you know, so we might be able to say, hey, if we wanted to publish a story that would maximize page views right now, um, we would say, oh, there's been an alien invasion, <laughs> right? And President Obama has been kidnapped and beamed up to Mars. I mean, everyone on the internet would look at that story for about five minutes, and then no one hopefully would ever read our site again. And there's no metric yet for kind of what's the long-term value that you're generating from a stupid article that you post today to get a lot of page views or the loyalty you develop with your customers. So we saw this in baseball a little bit where for a while people were able to measure offense really well and not defense really well. And so the sloppy conclusion there is that, oh, we can't measure defense, therefore it doesn't matter. Well, it turned out that when people actually found better ways to measure defensive ability, it turned out to matter at least as much, maybe more, than the conventional wisdom had held. So we're we're aware of that and that, you know, it's some things you can judge with metrics, some things you can't, and that, that's a tricky part of the media business now. How long do you think you'll do 538 for? 
um, hopefully for the foreseeable future. I mean, obviously we have a big election coming up in in 2016, but you know, people when they're when they're taking jobs here assume this is going to be an organization that um, that builds and grows for for the long term. Is it my imagination or? Has ESPN loosened up on talking about sports gambling, which traditionally the NFL, uh, among others, has been really nervous about? But it, it feels like this past NFL season, there was a lot more discussion on ESPN about betting lines. Well, look, I mean, Grantland, which is our sister brand, and Bill Simmons, I mean, they've always talked a lot about sports gambling. And I mean, look, you can kind of see from the examples you cite that I don't think ESPN has too many hangups about it. Um, the leagues, increasingly, especially the NBA, have fewer hangups about it, too. But this is one of those weird things that Americans are pretty puritanical about. I mean, before I started 538, um, I made my living playing poker <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, they knew what they were getting getting into. Um, and, you know, gambling and betting is very important in markets, too. And where that line is drawn, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, I mean, they're not saying, hey, go give me your Vegas picks, but we get no pushback at all from our bosses or from readers when when things are framed in that way. What do you think will be the first of the four major sports leagues to have a franchise in Vegas? The NHL, that's kind of not a trick question, but the NHL is actively pursuing um, placing a team in Las Vegas. You know, I'd say the NBA, since it seems... Um, more gambling friendly. They've had, I believe, an all-star game or two in Vegas. Seems like the next most likely. I'm not sure that baseball, where you need to turn out, uh, you know, thirty or forty thousand people, eighty-one times a year, is as good an area where um, where the population isn't that high necessarily. And I don't think baseball has become an event in the same way that an NBA game has. For for example, one of my questions too is when you're, when you're going to have the first major political convention in Las Vegas. Because <laughs> um, you'd think, hey, it's a swing state. You could not have more uh, hotel space there, especially in the midsummer. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think both parties are terrified of, of what might happen or the implications of the story. God, can you imagine the prop bets um, day of? That would be so <laughs> much fun, right? <laughs> yeah, um, it'd, be, it'd be a lot of fun. Maybe I'm sure the libertarians do... Lots of fun things in, in Las Vegas, but not Democrats or Republicans yet. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, we put our standard set of frequently asked questions to Nate Silver. Even if you're a hardcore Nate Silver fan, you'll learn a thing or two. So I was born on a Friday the 13th. I've been thinking about trying to formulate like a kind of Friday the 13th birthday club or organization <laughs> or something. And if you're a hardcore Freakonomics fan, you should circle on your calendar Tuesday, May 5th. That's the day we release our latest book. It is called When to Rob a Bank and 131 More Warped Suggestions and Well-Intended Rants. It's a compilation of our favorite posts from 10 years of blogging at Freakonomics.com. Among the questions we try to answer... Why don't flight attendants get tipped? If you were a terrorist, how would you attack? And why does KFC always run out of fried chicken? That's When to Rob a Bank, published on May 5th, and available now for pre-order at booksellers everywhere.
Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Walmart Plus. Walmart Plus is the membership that helps you save on things you expect, plus the things you don't. The plus in Walmart Plus stands for all the ways you can save. Walmart Plus's suite of benefits can be used every day to help members save time and money. Members save on free delivery, free shipping, gas discounts, plus so much more. With Walmart Plus, members save on this plus so much more. Start a free 30-day trial at www.walmartplus.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Today, we are talking with Nate Silver. He's the editor-in-chief of 538.com, the author of The Signal and the Noise, and, as you will hear soon, a would-be curler, as in the sport of curling, seriously. We are now about to subject Silver to what we call our frequently asked questions. In the past, we've tried this with Boris Johnson, the mayor of London. You plan to make this a regular feature, but this is the first time that you've tried it on some guinea pig. We did it with Kevin Kelly, the technology maverick. I tell you, there's nothing more boring than hearing someone's acid trip. <laughs> and now it's Nate Silver's turn. Who would you say has been the biggest influence on your life and work and why? And I guess I mean here not so much personally, but professionally. So maybe it's the intellectual influence. I mean, you know, I admire um, Bill James a lot for what he did with baseball statistics. Um in part because he was way, way ahead of his time. I mean, you know, kind of preceded Moneyball literally by by 20 years or thereabouts, but also because he's a good communicator and kind of a humanist at heart, right? Um, you know, he's not just interested in statistics for statistics sake, but, um, but how they're used to kind of vest life and our understanding of sports and other things with, with a lot of meaning instead. And also wasn't operating at the white-hot center of either statistics or baseball or media, for that matter, and quite the opposite. No, he did not jump on <laughs> on the wagon, <laughs> right? He kind of jumped um, into the row when there was no bandwagon even approaching <laughs> at all. And maybe got run over a couple times and then led the bandwagon now. What's one thing you spend or have spent way too much on but don't regret? And I realize as I ask you that question now, it sounds like I'm talking about money, but I guess spending could also be time. I mean, I invest a lot of time and a lot of money in in eating. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. one of those things that I think in a market like New York where I live, 
really rewards effort um, where if you spend the time to to try different places and sometimes spend the money, although there's great cheap eats in New York too, um, you know, I just find that it's a product where where it's a fun <laughs> way to experiment and and um, something where you have to eat every day, right? So you might as well uh, put some thought into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's your favorite food? I know you're partial to burritos, but are they your favorite or are there many? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I particularly like, you know, Mexican food, Japanese food and, and Italian food, I kind of see as, as being pretty iconic. Um, you know, I, in part because they're cuisines that emphasize, um, not a lot of pretense really, right? It's kind of fresh and simple ingredients a lot of the time, as opposed to sort of the kind of French classical tradition where I think they're sometimes trying to, to dazzle you with, with presentation and, and style. So it's elegantly simple, those cuisines, I think. What, what, in your view, is the perfect burrito? So I went to a place called La Taqueria in San Francisco, which won our um, first national burrito bracket <laughs> last year. Uh-huh. And that was, that mm-hmm. was the best, best burrito I ever had. Uh-huh. And what kind of burrito did you have? Um, so it had uh, chorizo, but it was kind of cooked. It was uh, called Dorado style so it's kind of golden brown on the outside and just kind of you know it's california so all the produce is really fresh and the ingredients are perfectly mixed there's not kind of lumping in a bunch of guacamole where it shouldn't be and whatnot so on kind of both artistic achievement and technical merit it scored very highly (laughs) (laughs) um what is one story that your family always tells about you when i was in nursery school or pre-k one day i decided to just um count numbers just to see how high I could count. <laughs> I was pretty insistent about it. I think I got to like 2,000 or something uh, before my mom uh, <laughs> picked me up that afternoon. And they realized then what your future contained, yes? Yeah, I think that was an early sign. What do you collect, if anything, and why? Um, I used to collect baseball cards when when I was a kid. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I kind of collect books. I mean, I have a pretty, pretty significant bookshelf. Um, that kind of keeps growing over time. One of the things about writing a book, as you probably know, is that you get sent um, an awful lot of books, too. And do you keep most of those ones you're sent, or do you start to triage? Yeah, I still have an issue with throwing away books. I just think it's bad. <laughs> it's bad karma. Giving away, maybe, but throwing away, no. Favorite book or author? You know, I kind of often talk about Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow was kind of just, I think, a really great overall kind of modern guide to thinking if that if that isn't a little too pretentious or too precious rather um but that's one of my favorite books good choice favorite music artist band singer songwriter um i used to uh be really into my buddy valentine in college this is kind of shoegazer post-punk band um Mm -hmm. you know so but i think music is maybe one of those things where it gets frozen in time a little bit, where kind of the favorite bands I have now at 37 are the same ones I might have said at 20, 21. Favorite sport to play? Uh, you know, I like to watch sports. I don't know, bowling, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Or uh, my partner actually owns a bowling ball. Um, oh, or, I thought you were going to say an alley. A ball, a ball is not that much. Oh, of an alley. That really? would be, that'd be quite something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've never been curling. I really want to go curling. My partner and I had this idea one time to to capitalize on like the curling frenzy which was when i missed that well every four years people there's a kind of cultish affection for the sport of curling 
which having grown up in Michigan with Canadian television on all the time, I appreciated. But the idea was to have some hideously expensive plan for building a curling rink in Central Park um, and just having such good like design and PR around it that people wouldn't realize it was just kind of a very elaborate inside joke. Now, let me ask you this. Don't you think you have the creativity and reputation to go to Donald Trump and say, look, Woolman Rink, once it's up, it's up all winter, and you could just carve out a nice little curling, I don't know what you call it, a curling lane? What do you call it? The, the area where one curls. That's a good, yeah, is it, I don't think it's an alley, right? Or a rink or something. Um, I have no idea. You know, I think if Donald Trump kind of carefully read what we wrote about him when he was, quote unquote, running for president <laughs> in 2011, he probably wouldn't return my phone call. Okay, so sport. your favorite sport to play, your official answer seemed to be bowling. Is that right? Sure. We'll go with, we'll go with bowling. Yeah. <laughs> What's the highest you've ever bowled? Um, I think I got like a 180 one time, which is not good for a highest ever score. You know, I was with Levitt once. He bowled a 222, which is, you know, but for a few pins, he was close to perfect, actually. And, and this was bowling kind of cross lane like wrong way for a right-hander with a like a 12 pound ball that didn't curve at all and he just he just threw it very 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 straight repeatedly kind of like an automaton and it was uh we were convinced he was ready for the senior pba after that i've tried to figure out what the relationship is between bowling and and beer consumption it's kind of a a laugher curve i think or something right but like after like 1.8 beers i think you're in peak bowling shape well, uh, although you can probably identify the peak of that curve a little bit more easily with bowling than with the Laffer curve, no? Does anyone I, really know where the Laffer curve peaks? <laughs> um, I think not. I mean, there is a curve, it seems to me. Um, but, right. you know, I guess even with bowling, there's some complications where you probably warm up to the lane and feel a little bit better. <laughs> so you'd have to do a control. This could be another 538 thing. Tell us something that most people, even if they think they know quite a bit about you, don't know about you. Um, so I was born on a Friday the 13th. I've been thinking about trying to formulate like a kind of Friday the 13th birthday club or organization <laughs> or something. Um, John Walsh, who's the former president of ESPN, I think was at least a, also a January 13th birthday. I think it was a Friday the 13th too. But, you know, kind of from my very beginning, I guess there was some kind of something slightly cosmic about, about numbers in me. What is one thing that people seem to know about you that is in fact not true? Maybe not if you listen to this interview, but I think people think that I take myself way more seriously than than I do. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I mean, for some reason, when you when you're associated with numbers and and data, you know, and look, there are other places out there where where they can be a little bit pedantic sometimes. But you know, I'm kind of a little anti-establishment and still anti authoritarian. That kind of goes back a long way, and we try in our newsroom at five thirty eight to to have a lot of fun and to poke fun at, at one another, um, you know, to see kind of the, the reader as a peer and not someone who you're educating. Um, and that doesn't always come through, I think, um, in kind of how, how 538 or how kind of my career is portrayed. You are just a regular burrito-loving wannabe curler who bowls once in a while and drinks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty normal in, in some respects and completely strange and in other respects. But, you know, that's one thing you learn, one of the most profound lessons to me about adulthood is that everyone's kind of weird. What's the biggest upside of being well-known? 
gosh, I mean, you know, sometimes you get, I think, slightly better service at restaurants. Um, <laughs> since I mentioned food before, right? Um, where, you know, one time I had a waiter kind of tip me off that, oh, someone, I think she was on our first day on the job. He's like, um, um, she was like, oh, my manager handed me a card saying I'm supposed to treat you well. I guess she was kind of very literal minded <laughs> and explicit <laughs> about it. So I would imagine yeah. that for every time that happens, there's a hundred times that, that it doesn't happen uh-huh. potentially. <laughs> but, you know, in my perfect world, I would be like kind of, um, you know, influential without being famous, if that makes any sense. You know, I don't mind if I get recognized out somewhere. Um, by, by the way, it follows a lot when you're on TV. If you're on TV, you'll have like a half-life where people recognize you But um, it, But that half-life is pretty fast, isn't it? It really... It's really fast. Because by seven days later, they've seen a thousand other faces and yours is um, starting to recede. At some point, you're kind of on the, the hedonistic treadmill, I guess, where it kind of becomes normalized pretty fast, right? And you're like, okay, so now, you know, every... 18th time <laughs> I go out, someone will say hello to me, and it's almost always friendly, and, and it's a nice thing. It would be jarring if it had never happened to you before, but, you know, but then you also get in environments where, so, so a year ago, I went to the Vanity Fair Oscar party, where you just realize that, like, there are whole orders of magnitudes <laughs> of fame that, I you know, I am just, like, totally, by as kind of a quasi-nerd celebrity, you're just dwarfed by you know, it's not like people are 20 times more famous or like 20,000 times more famous. And you get in a room like that and you're like kind of literally the least famous person there. And it's it's kind of fun to be a fly on the wall again. What's something that you believed for a long time to be true and then decided that you'd been wrong? Oh, gosh, this is a, a tricky, <laughs> a tricky question. I mean, you know, a little bit of it kind of gets into the critique we were talking about a bit about big data earlier where um where i kind of thought well just be quantitative and then that's better categorically than being qualitative and that'll solve all your problems i mean i still believe to a very rough approximation people need to be more quantitative but um but i think it needs to be a much more kind of structured investigation of the data um and kind of realizing this is one of the challenges one of the reasons that kind of betting and markets are interesting is that whenever you have a belief that kind of differs a lot from the consensus, then that's a very complicated place to be. Uh, We are more than two years out, but I'd be an idiot not to ask you if you today had to bet $1,000 with, let's say, me, which if you were still at the New York Times, you wouldn't be allowed to bet with me, I guess, Um, but you you could now, presumably. Um, Who's going to be president in 2016? Well, you know, I don't know that anyone has more than a 50% chance. You know, I think the plurality favorite is is a pretty easy question, which is Hillary Clinton. Um, if you figure to a 50-50, well, to an approximation, it's 50-50 in the general election, which is probably about right in these circumstances. She is the dominant contender for the Democratic nomination where the GOP field is quite split. So she, you know, she would certainly be the, the front runner in that sense. Does political data analysis start to bore you after a while? Um. A little bit, but I think I'll be reinvigorated by 2016. So, so midterm elections are big letdowns relative to how fun presidential years are. 2010 happened to be super interesting because you had this very large Republican wave that had very tangible consequences as far as President Obama's ability to continue to enact and affect his agenda. Um, so that almost had kind of a presidential-type storyline to it. Um, the midterms last year were 
were pretty dull. I got to be honest. They were interesting from a forecasting standpoint in that there was some uncertainty about what the polls said and which party would win the Senate. Um, but I don't expect any problems like that in, in 2016. We're going to have at least one really compelling primary. Um, you know, we should have a close general election. There's kind of a cottage industry to covering Hillary Clinton, even if it's sort of a field of, of one. So, you know, that's really fun. In some ways, the, the presidential primaries are a much more interesting and in some ways kind of a better design process than, than, the, than the general election in that you have to perform well continuously over time. It requires more organization. Um, you can't get hot on one day. It's like having to win a seven-game series instead of, right. instead of just right. one game. Right. Yeah. But it sounds like you and maybe I'm wrong on this, but just from this conversation, from what else I've read of yours, uh, it, it just sounds as though sports is more fun generally than politics or you like sports more than you like politics as as, as shallow a, a characterization that is. Yeah. I mean, look, I am really into kind of election data, but I'm not like a fan of politics per se. Right. <laughs> like I don't you take didn't any... you didn't collect political cards when you were a kid, in other words. No, you know, I didn't kind of take joy in, you know, I don't even always watch like the State of the Union, <laughs> for example, whereas I very much do enjoy watching and spending income on going to sports games. Um, you know, I think in some ways the fact that I'm not kind of a, I mean, I'm a politics geek, right, but I don't love politics. I think that's helpful, potentially. I think in Washington in, in particular, there's a lot of reverence for the political system that leads to less criticality in coverage that leads, I think, really to um, to people sometimes lacking perspective on which stories resonate or not. So one interesting thing is at the time we're recording this, there's a big um, controversy over Hillary Clinton's email records. There's good reporting on that, excellent reporting from the New York Times. But you have some pundits who are saying, oh, this is a huge blow to her candidacy. If you go to betting markets, and they have these in, in the UK now, some of the US ones were shut down, but Hillary Clinton's probability of winning the nomination or the general election haven't budged one bit. I'm not promising you the markets are right. They can be slow to pick up on, on information. But it's interesting that the scandal that is considered to be a huge deal by the political press, um, bettors are kind of saying this is literally nothing at all. And so I think sometimes people don't realize that things that are great reported stories, right, um, um, and deserve to be, you know, I believe in transparency, government, and everything else, right? But they might lack perspective on on what things people outside of the proverbial cocktail party are really talking about. Nate, thanks. This was a blast. You're uh, you're great, and it was um, a lot of fun. And but most of all, just congratulations. I'm super happy for all your successes, and I hope they just keep going. Absolutely, I really appreciate it. And remember, on May 5th, Steve Levitt and I publish our latest Freakonomics book. It's called When to Rob a Bank. If you want to learn more, keep up on our public appearances and so on, you can visit Freakonomics.com, where you will also find an archive of more than 200 episodes of Freakonomics Radio. Also, would you like to appear in a future episode? We're producing one right now about the economics of sleep. So we'd like to hear from you about your sleep routine. How many hours do you need? How many do you get? What do you do to try to ensure a good night's rest? Be specific. What's your optimal room temperature for sleeping? Do you do anything to block out light or noise? Or maybe you like background music. 
What are your pillow habits? Sleep position. What do you wear, if anything? Do you sleep best alone or with someone else? Or maybe many someone else's? What do you do about eating or drinking or taking drugs before you sleep? How are you affected by stress or travel or the weather? What is the very best night's sleep you ever had? What's the worst? So if you're willing to share any parts of your sleep story, use your phone to make a short audio recording. Just use whatever voice memo app is on your phone and email us the file at radio at freakonomics.com. Tell us your name, where you live, and also what you do when you are not sleeping. And coming up next week on the podcast. Sometimes doing things differently and simply and with a kind of joy and triviality leads you to a really special place that as an adult you don't get to go to very often. How thinking like a child can make you a better problem solver. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Greg Rosalski, Caroline English, Susie Lechtenberg, Merritt Jacob, and Christopher Wirth. With help from David Herman, Anna Hyatt, Rick Kwan, Daniel Tazula, and Paul Schneider. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.